0: Once again, good evening. We've already enjoyed being part of a great worship service, which is a good uh, prayer and good songs that we've had. We're going to spend a little time with our Bibles this evening, as we always do. Appreciate very much Brother Fletcher and Brother Will uh, bringing in this wagon wheel, and I'd like to use this as a means and as a um, kind of a prop for our lesson This evening. The main thing about a wagon wheel is the hub, the middle of it. Because, as you can very well see, that's what makes the whole wheel turn. The the spokes are attached to the hub, and then the other end of the spoke is attached to the wheel, and the hub makes uh, the wheel go round. The ideal of a hub, though, takes on a figurative sense as well. The hub of something is the center around which all the other things revolve. The hub is the center around which all the other things uh, revolve. And for us, the day of Pentecost is that hub. Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is that hub, it's the hub of the Bible. It is Pentecost that takes us in the right direction concerning every other part of Scripture. All Scripture revolves around Pentecost. And that means that our thoughts about salvation must revolve around the day of Pentecost as well. I know that you want to reach your neighbor. I know that you want to reach your family members with the gospel I know that you want to be ready whenever an opportunity arises to be able to talk about the gospel. This is a way. This is a very key way. In fact, I would say that you won't get very far about teaching concerning Christianity, the religion of Jesus, unless you're able to travel through these paths that we're traveling together tonight. So let's think about this. It really is amazing how often the Bible either indicates or implies concerning the day of Pentecost. And we'll start off with a simple one, and that is Jesus' promise to build the church in Matthew chapter uh, 16. In Matthew chapter 16, as you very well know, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And Peter gave the most succinct and correct answer. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord responds to Peter by saying, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you, Peter, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. And I will give unto you, notice this, Matthew 16, verse 19. Notice this, Jesus to Peter, talking about building his church. He said, Peter, I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever then you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will already be loosed in heaven So Jesus promises the keys of the kingdom to Peter and you can't search scripture very far without looking at Acts chapter 2 and noticing right there in Acts 2 verse 14, Peter stands up with the rest of the apostles and begins to explain what's going on there on the day of Pentecost and then he goes on into a great proclamation of the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, think about this. Jesus talked about the kingdom in another place, the kingdom. In John 3, 3 through 5, he said, One must go through the new birth process, which includes water, which includes baptism, in order to come and be part of the kingdom of heaven. And when Peter was asked about the problem of sin, right there on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 36 and 37, Peter is asked, What? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter responds by, by guidance from the Lord, and said, "Repent ye and be baptized, water. Be baptized for the remission of your sins.". And this goes right along with Ephesians 5:26. as Paul explains it, he says, "The Lord cleanses the church, the Lord sanctifies the church." Ephesians 5:26, by the washing of water." and the Word. You see how all this points right to Pentecost? In Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, Paul mentions how that at the point of baptism, one is translated, is brought forth from a domain of darkness in the world, and is translated, transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So notice there, as Paul writes to the brethren at Colossae, that the kingdom is alive and going. Jesus told Peter, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom through which and with which Peter could preach the gospel and open up the doors of the kingdom that is the church. So notice how that Jesus promising to build His church points right down to the day of Pentecost. Also, think about this. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, He pointed right down to that great day of Pentecost. Notice Luke's recording of the Great Commission. We don't look at it as often, at least I don't. Shame on me. Luke 24, 46 and 47. Luke 24, 46 and 47. Thus it is written, Jesus says, as He gives the Great Commission. Thus it is written... And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Where is Peter on the day of Pentecost as he's preaching the gospel? Of course, he is in the city of Jerusalem. Notice that Jesus said that part of the Great Commission was that you would go forth and you would teach and preach in His name. In His name. Notice Peter's response again in Acts 2.38 when he said, Repent ye and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice how in giving the Great Commission, Jesus implies and points right to the day of Pentecost. And notice how that Jesus in Acts chapter one verse eight also takes up his own remarks as he is about to ascend up unto heaven and and become uh, the ruler of the church, the head of the church, and sit on the right hand of God. Notice in Acts chapter one verse eight, Jesus told his apostles, "You shall be my witnesses." Beginning where? Beginning where? Notice Acts 1 verse 8. You shall be my witnesses beginning right here in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That in one verse is an outline of the book of Acts, because you know the gospel is preached boldly in Jerusalem, and then it branches out into the outer parts, into the countryside of Jerusalem, and then to Samaria, Acts chapter 8, and then finally to all the parts of the world as Paul comes and preaches with his missionary journeys. And so notice how that Jesus, in giving the Great Commission, points right to the day of Pentecost. But also, Jesus, in another place, foretells the coming of his kingdom. And notice this in Mark chapter 9, and verse 1. He foretells the coming of his kingdom. He predicts it. He says it's coming. No problem for Jesus because he is the Lord. He is the one we spoke about this morning who has all the power uh, that we could ever imagine. So notice Jesus in Mark chapter 9 verse 1 talking to a few of his disciples. He says, there are some of you standing here today who will not taste of death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Notice what that little verse uh, teaches. First it teaches the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom slash church is coming. Notice it would come in the lifetime of those people that Jesus was talking to on this occasion. You will not taste the death, you will not die. you will not leave this earth until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Notice when the kingdom comes, it will come with power with power. Again, Jesus comments on his own words, Acts 1 verse 8. He tells his apostles, Acts 1 verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we understand by opening up our Bibles and reading Acts 2 around verse 4 that the Holy Spirit in a very grand fashion did come upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. So notice as Jesus foretells the coming of his kingdom, he really is pointing again down to the day of Pentecost. By the way, what we just went over is an airtight uh, series of of explanations. In other words, you, you can't get around it. You can't get around it. Jesus plainly said that his kingdom was coming during the lifetime of his apostles. He plainly said that it would come with power. He plainly says the power would be associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit. When did the Holy Spirit come upon the apostles and qualified them to do a lot of miraculous things? Well, it came on the day of Pentecost. Add this to that. Luke 24, verse 49, before Jesus ascended, Luke records this. Luke 24, 49. Jesus said to his apostles, The promise of my Father is going to come upon you. Stay here in the city, city of Jerusalem. Stay here in the city until you be endued or clothed with power from on high. Again, Jesus predicting that some power is going to come upon uh, the apostles. And it's going to come upon them in the city of Jerusalem. No doubt that has reference again to the promise of the Father to send the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. So notice that from Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1. So when Jesus... Promises to build his church when Jesus gives the Great Commission and when Jesus foretells the coming of his kingdom, he is pointing right down to this great day of Pentecost. The next little spoke I want us to work on is John chapter 16, verse 13, where Jesus specifically promises the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his apostles. Notice that there in John 16 and verse 13, Jesus says to his apostles, and He, the Spirit of truth, when He has come upon you, He will guide you into all the truth. Now, when this manifestation of the Spirit came upon the apostles, it qualified them to do several things. It qualified them to preach the truth, teach the truth without mistakes. Without any mistake. Secondly, it caused them to be able to teach this truth without any prior preparation. They could just get up and speak it. And then, thirdly, it qualified them to do the miracles that they were able to do in order to confirm the Word, Mark 16, verse 20, in order to to affirm that what they were saying was indeed from heaven up above, from the Father Himself. Now, right there in that area of John 16, Jesus talks quite a bit about the Spirit coming upon the apostles. Notice two or three of these verses together. John fourteen twenty six. he says, When the Spirit comes upon you, he will bring to your, remem- to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's pretty nice, isn't it? When the Spirit comes upon you, you'll be able to remember all that I have said unto you. You can almost just hear a, a sigh from the apostles. Like, okay, that's, that makes a little bit of sense now. You know, I'm sure they've been worried about how we're going to remember all this that Christ has been teaching us. How are we possibly going to remember this? So that's going to happen. John 14, 26. And then John uh, 15, 26 says, Jesus said to his apostles, that when the Spirit comes upon you, then you'll be able to bear witness of the truth. Okay. As I said a moment ago, they'd be able to go forth without, without a lot of preparation. And just be able to speak the truth wherever they may be. And then John 16, 13 again. The Spirit, when He comes upon you, He will guide you into all the truth. Every bit of it. And then later there in John 16, 13, notice that when the Spirit comes upon you, He will declare to you things to come. Things to come. That covers it, don't it? When the Spirit comes upon the apostles, it will bring to their remembrance and it will help them go forth and teach the truth. When they sit down and write the truth, the Lord will guide them to all the truth. And then they'll be able to declare things to come. Things like heaven, things like second coming, things like you read about in the book of Revelation, things to come. In fact, these promises of the Spirit upon the apostles covers the New Testament, doesn't it? I mean, what is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John except for the fact that that the apostles were able to remember all that Jesus said to them. That's why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 15, 26 says, When the Spirit comes upon you, you'll be able to bear witness to the truth. That's what the book of Acts is. It is the apostles, Peter and John. It is Barnabas. It is Paul, eventually. It is Silas and others going forth and bearing witness to the truth. Teaching the truth. John 16, 13, the Spirit would guide them to the all the truth. What is that except that several of them are able to sit down and write about their experiences and write letters uh, to the churches? John 16, 13, the Spirit would help you declare things to come. Okay. And again, as I said, that points out to the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, and all the different predictions can, uh, attached to the book of Revelation. There you have in Jesus promises basically how the apostles and early writers come to bring us the New Testament. And notice how that again as Jesus promises this spirit the pouring out of this spirit would come as we read in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And then let's notice just a few Old Testament prophecies That bring to our remembrance the day of Pentecost. Let's start with Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 and 3. Isaiah chapter 2 and verses uh, 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the last days, Isaiah says, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and all nations shall flow into it. So let's stop right there. Let's ask a few questions. When is this going to happen? In the last days. In the last days. The last days refer to the time of Christ. From Pentecost to whenever Jesus comes again. Those are the last days. Okay. And for a little side reference there, connect Joel chapter 2, 28 with what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, beginning about verse 16, when he said, when Joel mentions the last days, Peter said, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke about. Okay. So, the day of Pentecost is the beginning of the last days on this earth. So that's when. Okay, what's going to happen during these last days? Well, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 15, Paul refers to the church as the house of God. He said to Timothy that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So that's what's going to happen during these last days, as, as Isaiah predicts. The mountain of the Lord's house should be established. And who's going to go into this house? All nations shall flow into it. All nations. That's what the Great commission's all about. That's why we read from Jesus' words in Luke 24, 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in my name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is key, but the gospel was not to stay there in Jerusalem. It was to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now let's keep reading in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Notice what standard would be used to guide people into the house of God. It shall come to pass, it says in Isaiah 2 verse 3, that he shall teach us of his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, where is this going to take place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What did Jesus say? All this was going to begin at Jerusalem. And what's going to happen at Jerusalem? The word of the Lord. What did Peter do? He got up and spoke. He started quoting prophecy from Joel 2. Later he quotes a prophecy from the Psalms of David. And he relates the events of Jesus Christ to the overall plan of God. Peter gets up and speaks the law of God. The word of the Lord beginning right there in Jerusalem. From that point on they took passages and similar messages that Peter preached. And went all over the world uh, with it. Notice how Isaiah points to the day of Pentecost. And since we mentioned Joel 2, let's look at Joel 2 for a second. Joel chapter 2. And and Joel's prophecy is um, found in Joel 2, 28 through 32. Joel 2, 28 through 32. We've already noticed that he says in the last days this is going to happen. What's going to happen in the last days, Joel? Well, the Spirit of the Lord will pour forth on all flesh. Stop right there. All flesh. All flesh. Some of our religious friends think that because it says all flesh and everybody is promised this great baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not true. It's not true. All flesh here is restricted, has a limited sense to it. It couldn't be all flesh. It doesn't refer to every human being. Okay? Some people don't don't really care even just a little about God. It cannot refer to all flesh in an unrestricted sense. If all flesh here was unrestricted, then it would also refer to animals because animals have flesh too. So there is a restricted sense to this, no doubt. And no doubt he's referring to the two major segments of society at that time, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Spirit of the Lord be poured forth on both those segments. The Jews first, Romans one sixteen, and then the Greeks. And so what you have happening here in Acts chapter 2, as Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2, you have the beginning of this prophecy being fulfilled, but it's not fulfilled completely yet. This all flesh idea. The apostles were all Jews. And so, indeed, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in Acts 2, a good part of this, Joel's Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled, but just partially. Later, according to Acts 10 and 45, also the household of Cornelius will receive this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then Joel's prophecy is completely fulfilled. Now one thing about Joel's prophecy here in Joel 2 verse 32 I believe it is he says and it shall come to pass that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice the parallel of that as Peter quotes from it in Acts chapter 2 it's Acts 2 verse 21 Peter quotes it. It shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Piece of chocolate cake. Explaining this as a piece of chocolate cake because Peter doesn't stop there. He continues to talk about the Lord Jesus and all that he's done and his resurrection and his um, being taken to the right hand of God and he's on the throne of God now. Let all Israel, Acts 2.36, know that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. They ask, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. The word saved in verse 21 is equal to remission of sins, Acts 2.38. Peter explains how to call on the name of the Lord. You call on the name of the Lord by repenting of your sins and being baptized, immersed in water for the remission of those sins. And to add to that, notice what Ananias said to Saul in Acts 22.16, Why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. What? Calling on the name of the Lord. That's how you call on the name of the Lord. You turn from your sin. You acknowledge Jesus as your Lord. You turn from your sin, and you're immersed in water for the remission of your sin. We remember Jesus saying in Matthew 7:21, "Not everyone who calls on the not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that what." He that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Simply voicing your favor toward God is not calling on the name of the Lord in the New Testament sense. Rather, obeying His will, surrendering to His will, that's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. So notice that from Joel uh, chapter 2. Now, just a couple others from the Old Testament. As Peter is preaching there, In Acts chapter 2... I don't have my Bible turned up properly here. You ever tried to read your Bible upside down? It's possible. Not fun. Now as Peter continues to make his case for Christ, as he's preaching Acts 2, you know in Acts 2 verse 22, he says Jesus is actually a man approved by God. You Jews think you did right in crucifying Him. Actually, this was part of God's determinate plan. To have him crucified? Okay. That made them stop in their tracks. And then he said, this Jesus you crucified, if you work your way down to Acts 2.24, God raised up. God raised him up. Because it was not possible that the pangs of death would hold Jesus down there in that Hadean world. Not possible. Not going to happen. God raised him up. And then to support what he was saying, here's what Peter does. He quotes from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. That's our third Old Testament passage that points to the day of Pentecost. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And part of that prophecy says, Thou will not leave my soul in Hades, neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's talking about Christ. Because the body of Jesus did not decay. He did not see corruption. He did not stay in that Hadean world. The power of God was too much for Jesus. The death could not hold Jesus there. No, He came forth. Now, Peter almost kind of predicts that somebody's going to say, well, maybe David was talking about himself. So if you just keep reading there, Acts chapter 2, 26. Let's see, 26, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 29, keep going down to verse 29. Peter begins to say, now concerning David, our father David, we have his tomb right here with us. In other words, implying if we had to, we could drag out his remains. David is still here with us as far as his bodily remains are concerned. David was not speaking of himself, but David being a prophet, he foresaw that God was talking about somebody who would come out of his loins, okay. would come out of his ancestry, and would be given his throne. As a side reference there, you might remark or like, might write down Luke one thirty two. Gabriel came and talked to Mary and said, now your son, he will be called the son of the most high. Most High God, and He will be given the throne of His Father David. That's what Peter's saying here. That's what David was saying back in Psalm sixteen, eight through eleven, that from His loins would come somebody who would be given the throne. Who would be given the throne of God? So, Psalm sixteen, verses eight through eleven, and then add to that as Peter makes his way down through his sermon in Acts two. He quotes from Psalm 110 and verse one. Psalm 110 and verse one it simply says, "The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." Again, David is referring to Christ. Jesus would sit down on the right hand of God. Hebrews one verse three. After he made, after he purged us from our sins made it possible to be personal our sins, he went up on high and sat down on the right hand of God. Okay. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. Look look you here. Jesus is going to be ruling not on earth, but from heaven on the right hand of God. People get that confused. Jesus never intended to rule on earth. He would be having a spiritual kingdom, and he would be ruling from the right hand of God. Okay. So notice we'll stop right there. There are other references, but notice here, four, at least what is it? Four from the New Testament, four from the Old Testament. Matthew 16, Mark chapter nine, verse one. Luke 24:47 with the great commission, and then Jesus' promise of the Spirit in John 16. And then Isaiah's prophecy of the church, Isaiah 2. Joel's prophecy of the events on the day of Pentecost, Joel chapter 2. David mentioning Christ twice, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Let's go back to Pentecost for a second. Pentecost carries with the idea of 50. 50 days after Passover, the Feast of Pentecost happened. The Feast of Pentecost was sort of a celebration for the Jews. God set it up, but it was a celebration. For them to render their thanks for all the blessings of God, but also for the blessings to come. The blessings to come. The day of Pentecost is called a feast. Like in Exodus uh, 23, 16, it's called the feast of harvest. But in Numbers 28, 26, it's called the feast of weeks. Feast of weeks. But staying right there in Numbers 28, 26. It is called the Day of First Fruits. Now that gets us excited right there. Pentecost is referred to as the Day of First Fruits. Because this time of the year, all the harvest has not come in. But some of it may start trickling in. And that is the first fruit. That's the the first promise of more to come. More to come. It is not an accident at all. That all of this was to take place, all this was to begin in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Because Pentecost means day of first fruits. On this day of Pentecost, the full gospel is proclaimed to the world. And there was going to be great reception of it. Acts 2.41 those that gladly received the word were baptized and there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. But there was more to come after this. What happened on the day of Pentecost was the first fruits. The divine promise of more to come. That's exactly what you see in the book of Acts. first fruits. Guess what that means for us? That means we are to... We are to be involved. We are to be involved in this first fruit business. We are to be sowing the seed. We are to be sowing the seed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, I planted Apollos water and God gave the increase. It happens that way all the time. If we have people planting the seed of the Word of God and somebody coming, around, coming along behind them and watering that, helping with that, adding to that, God will give the increase every time. Pentecost. Now in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Peter calls Pentecost the beginning. The beginning. And it was the beginning of a lot of things. Count it off with me. It was the beginning of the last days. It was the beginning of the full preaching of the gospel facts. The death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus up on high. This could not be proclaimed until the day of Pentecost. Not fully proclaimed. It was the beginning of the universal offer of the remission of sins. This is what God had been pointing to for a very, very long time. In fact, as we mentioned this morning from 1 Peter 1:20, God had this in mind before he ever created us. It's the beginning of the universal remission of sins. It is the beginning of the church. They added to the church those who are being saved, Acts 2 and 47. It is the beginning of the New Testament. The New Testament. As Hebrews 9, 15 and 17 says, a testament, a will cannot go into impact, into effect, until the death of the testator. Jesus now has died. Now his testament, now his covenant can begin. That's why Jesus said, as he talked about the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, 28, this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for their remission." of sins. This is the beginning of the New Testament. This is the beginning of new worship to God, no longer worshiping under the old covenant system. No no longer worshiping under the patriarchal system. Now we are worshiping through Jesus Christ. Now we are priests unto God. Now we're coming forth with worship that is to be done in spirit and in truth and according to the New Testament. This is the beginning of a new marital requirements. Jesus hinted at this in Matthew 16. Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. On the day of Pentecost was the beginning of the restoration of marriage, of how it was intended to be way back at the creation of time. Day of Pentecost, the hub, the center around which everything else revolves. Don't you see that really we can't even begin to understand salvation until we understand this great day? We can't begin to teach someone else the gospel of Jesus until we understand the importance of this great day. And so we wanted to share these thoughts. There's much more we could say Along these lines. Maybe we'll get that opportunity later, but right now let's stop and we reflect on ourselves. Let's ref- reflect on ourselves. First, how is my study of the Word of God going? How's it going? Is this about it for you? Coming in, hearing a little lesson on Sunday, 30, 35 minutes long, and then going home? Is that about it? That's not going to get it done. Remember this morning we said there's two types of knowledge. Knowledge that you just kind of absorb from the environment. That's what everybody does. Then that, that special knowledge from God, the Word of God, we need to be taken into our lives. How's your study of the Word going? How's your relationship with Jesus going? Are you taking to heart His own purpose? Are you taking to heart His own love for us? Remember this morning we said one of the great purposes for being here is to learn about the love of God and then to be like Him. Not just talk about it, but to be like Him, to love like He loves. We invite you home to the Lord right now as we stand together as we sing.